and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and today on the show, we're talking through Midnight Tides in spoilers and its relationship to the whole series. So we're talking spoilers to the main 10 in that way, so make your decisions as you do. We started the show about two years ago, and I think I felt a lot of pressure at that time, and I still feel that pressure because, you know, my other co-hosts haven't read all the books, so I'm often positioned in this way where, like, I'm the one who knows what's going on, or uh, I'm the expert or something. I, I feel this anxiety, and that's certainly not the case. I mean, uh, I, you know, especially in this series, people have read the books a lot of times. There's a lot of opinions. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts, you know, and I'm just one person, you know, so sometimes it feels like a lot to bear, but what's been really great is recently over the past year or so, um, um, I feel like there's been more conversation around the books growing, especially on YouTube. Um, and Iskar Jarek was there first and in some ways. And now in his wake, we have more people coming into the community and sharing their voices and opinions. And it's really great because, as I said, I am just one. And I, you know, I, I, I hate to, you know, I don't want to take up too much space. So I invited two uh, great Malazan YouTubers on the show. Here today, we have the counselor of Moonspawn. Welcome to the show, counselor. Um, yeah, I'm very pleased that I can be here. Um, it's really a great opportunity to get to talk um, to Malaysian fans from all over the world. And yeah, I'm excited to talk Midnight Tides today. Me too. And on, on our third member round out of the crew is Ruthann Bad. Greetings. Yeah, so today uh, we're just going to, you know, as I said, get situated, talk Midnight Tides and where it falls into the whole series. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I've been gabbing on for a few months about the book, but let's just kick it off. Uh, counselor, what do you think of the the fifth book kind of about maybe the halfway-ish mark, you know, wherever you want to put it. But it's also the book that kind of introduces, I was going to say the last set of chess pieces, but that's just not true. We keep introducing things. But it's the last major setting, and it's, a, you know, we're. I feel like after this point, we start pushing towards the finale. So in some ways, in some ways. So what do you think of Midnight Tides, and uh, what do you think of the book? Mm, so I'd like to go... Um, a little, a little bit back in time to when I read Midnight Tides for the first time. So I know that a lot of people are struggling with it a little because you get presented with a whole new cast of characters. Um, mm. And I think the only crossover character is Charles Zengar. Um, I have I to so, say, right? I never really had an issue with the new cast of characters because I felt at home on the continent of leather pretty quickly. And I think Midnight Tides introduces a lot of great new characters. Of course, we have all the Tist Edur and the Sengar family, especially. Then we have Tihul and Bak, who are absolute legends. And then, of course, the whole uh, kingdom and later empire of Leather. So I always really, really enjoyed um, that about the book. And also what you've already kind of said is it's the last big storyline um, that we get introduced to. And it's kind of a little bit of a setup, I think, for the later books. And I think that kind of give it, gives it a little bit of a unique uh, position in the series. So 
Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point that it is kind of, I don't know, which some could say is a weakness. In some ways, it is a book about setup. But I, I do agree with you in that I, for one, have always been thrown off when people say like, oh, I'm surprised. Like, I don't know. I had a hard time adjusting to the new setting, this type of thing. Because I think for me, I had a really hard time in Garns of the Moon. And then I had, did better in Dead House Gates, the, the next big setting change. And then I feel like by the time I got to book five, I was so used to how Erickson was telling stories. I was like ready to start and we started fresh and I was like from page one fully in it and fully getting it so Ruth on did you have struggled with the transition what did you think about the book where do you where do you think about this book in the series so in general I've, I've got to admit uh, uh, this is not one of those books that I've reread several times I've revisited the Tehol and Buck scenes uh, an infinite number of times uh, essentially but as far as some of the major plot points go I do enjoy the final third of the book, the final act of the book, I find that very enjoyable and the entire sort of uh, T-Stedo invasion of the Kingdom mm. of Leather is uh, pretty yeah, spectacular yeah. when you think about it with uh, all of these different uh, factions now coming together uh, behind the Edo to overrun uh, the Kingdom of Leather. But uh, in terms of the POV change, I think you're right in the sense that by the time we get to book five, we are, some of us are seasoned veterans already and we kind of expect this. However, I do feel that there is a certain sort of, uh, there is a certain segment of the fan base who clearly have a hard time adjusting to it. Uh, Definitely. So, so and, and the reason for this is not just because it's a new setting, but because it's such a, it's such a completely different setting in the sense that it's it's not like the jump between Deadhouse Gates and uh, Gardens of the Moon, where it is a completely new continent, but we still see remnants of the consequences of Gardens of the Moon play out in Deadhouse Gates. We see the, the journeys of uh, Kalam yeah. and Fiddler uh, and a couple of the rest. But here, we aren't even sure when this happens. All we know is that this happens before we meet Trull in some of the earlier books. But in terms of a timeline, it takes us a pretty much a long time before we get a handle on when exactly this happens. And I think that is quite jarring as well. No, I think you're you're dead on on that. And especially since the only through line, like Counselor said, is Troll. And, you know, I don't know. I like Troll and House of Chains and everything, but it's definitely just like, oh, yeah, here's this new dude. He's like sad, got a past and everything. You saw him in the prologue. And now all of a sudden the books about him. I don't know. I get it. I mean, I don't know. Now that you say it, I do somewhat get it, but I just, I love this book a lot. So I feel like I've always been enthused by that element to it, you know? I think what has been making it a little easier for me was actually the prologue, because we get that little bit of background between Skabandari and Silch's Ruin. So yes, I have mentioned Atist Andi for the first time. Yay. <laughs> yeah. As it would have been expected I was, I, from I, I me. Just, I was just going to say Five minutes in and <laughs> counselors already gushing over Silch's ruin. Great. Yeah, no, but um, <laughs> the reason why I like this is because it uh, gives us a little bit of context, right? Because we learn that uh, way back in the past, something has been going on, a clash between the Tist Erur and the Tist Andi, whom we already know. So that's also a level of connection to the earlier books. And I like that because I wanted to know what's going to happen now. Um, is Lucha's going to come back? Are we going to get more Andy content? Or how is all of this going to connect? So that has been helping me personally. 
And I think that's one of those things where, like, the eater piece of the whole thing, you know, is kind of an unspoken question throughout the first four. I think there's some mentions to, like, well, what's going on with the Throne of Shadow? You know, this type of questioning. But it's definitely, like, I don't know. Oh, I suppose you see the, you know, the Salandra and Salana. Salandra? Which one's the boat? The boat and the dragon have similar names. Salanda. Salanda and Salandra. Anyway, so you see them and you see the, 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 the killed eater. Anyway, but my, my, my main point stands. They're mostly an elusive question in the first four books. And the, uh, the corpse that we find in book three, we, we find the fate of it at the end of book five, that uh, bug sent him to the uh, the bottom of the ocean because in in the third book there's a conversation between quick ben and ganos paran and and quick ben's like oh there's a this thing's called a tea steedur and ganos paran's like what the fuck is a tea steedur and quick ben has to sort of put it into context for him and it's only at the very end of book five that we realize that this corpse is the one that was almost beating tehol to death and uh, buck sends him to the bottom of the sea I gotta say, I didn't put that together. You know, I remember that scene in Memories of Ice, but I didn't put it together as that dude. So I'm loving, loving the brain melt over here, you know. Um, so here's just a simple question for, uh, let's throw it to you, Counselor. So, you know, the story really, in some ways, although I think the Luther and the Eater stories really are integrated very meaningfully, do you think either one you more meshed with? Because I was really surprised going through it this time. My co-hosts definitely were more interested in the Luther half of it, which for me leaves me out in, I don't know, I just really love the kind of domestic family drama elements and those elements between the brothers in The Eater. So I wonder if one of those two more you gel with. Ooh, hmm. So in general, I feel like the thing with uh, Ericsson's books is that it's always a little hard to decide who to root for. And with Midnight Tides, I found that I have been, like, it has been changing a little um, over the course of the book. So if I remember correctly, especially in the beginning, I was kind of rooting for the Tist Eater a little bit more. Um, and sure. I really found their society and um, the Sengar brothers really interesting. But then um, the farther you progress, the more you start to question now, who am I supposed to be rooting for? So it's, I don't know, I can't really answer that question. I think that when I read Midnight Tides for the first time, I was enjoying the Edor storylines a little bit more, but then I enjoyed the sole storyline of Teal and Bach more than everything else. <laughs> and I think on reread, I kind of enjoyed both uh, people equally, I guess. So mm. I, I can't really choose. <laughs> no, I do know what you mean. I mean, the Eater are kind of... I don't know. Corrupted is seems like a simplistic way to describe it, but um, I don't know. Maybe you know what I'm getting at. I don't know. Ruthon, what do you what did you think of between the two if you had to pick? So I think the prologue kind of set up for me this notion that the E dude were somehow gonna play an antagonistic role with the betrayal of Silch's ruin and things like that. So that probably marred my sort of my perspective of the E dude to begin with. And where once you meet Tehol and Bug once you sort of, uh, at least for me, once I got to experience the pages with those characters, uh, it wasn't even close for me. I was with the Lethari the entire way. I'm not a big fan of Trull, to be honest. I can see why a lot of people like the character, but uh, the whole tragic, noble, pure-hearted, uh, whatever, uh, angel, that's not really my cup of tea in terms of the characters that I enjoy. So for me, it wasn't really hard. I was uh, firmly in favor of the 
hyper capitalist uh, lethary empire rather than these uh, whatever uh, tribal uh, edu very interesting but you do touch on something you know you use the word antagonistic and i um you know i don't know especially like you're saying counselor sometimes it's hard to use that language when talking about the series right because erickson sets things up in just a more complicated way a lot of the times and so that brings me to one time i was talking about Rulad with some people, you know, on on the Discord or some forums or something. And I, I, th- I said I think he is the series' most sympathetic villain, you know? Which, I, you know, I don't want to use, you know, villain is a loaded word, but, 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 you know what I mean? But I do find I have tremendous sympathy for him, and he is, I don't know, I, antagonistic. I, the thing is, I think those words carry a judgment with it, you know? And I just don't, I don't know, I, I you know, it's... In some ways, Rulad's a pretty bad dude, right? So, like, I, I'm, I'm extremely judgmental by nature. So, yeah, I, I, I totally <laughs> judge uh, Malazan character. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And listen, you know, maybe it's all right to judge him. I don't know. I, you know, I'm just trying over here. Anyway, so what, what do you? I, I guess this is all to say. I really love Rulad as a character, and I think his arc in this book is really interesting. But I wonder how you guys feel about how the Eater are tackled in Reaper's Gale. We're going to get to the book when we get to it. But I think this book does such a great job of portraying them as a complicated people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think part of me loved this book so much. I was kind of let down because I didn't feel like Reaper's Gale really was the follow up to this book I wanted it to be. Mm, I'm just thinking. So I considering the Eater or the Tist or Tist. It's Tyst, right? I always say Tyst, but anyway. I always say Tyst, but I think it's Tyst. <laughs> I, yeah, I say Tyst, and I will say Tyst until I die. Yeah. <laughs> I've so actually anyway, been called a... out for my <laughs> false pronunciation, but anyway. Me too. The um, pronunciation so... thing, though, is never, I don't know. Some of my pronunciations are bad. I'll give you that. But like, anyway, continue, continue. So um, before we get into the complexity of the Edor, I would just like to mention that I've always felt like the Tist have a tendency of following their leaders. Mm. Um, because if you look at the Andy, they're kind of always doing what Drake wants. Then we have that thing with uh, Skabandari and the slaughter of the Andy, where they just seem to be following Skabandari. I mean, okay, we don't know a lot about that, but still. And then again, we have um, Hanan Mosak um, uniting the Edo tribes, and then he is kind of replaced by Rulat. And then they just follow again, and they seem to be a little mindless about that. And the only um, Idor in Midnight Heights whom we really see question things is Charles Engar. So I don't know if maybe that's a little bit of a tist trait that they just, yeah, kind of give up thinking for themselves and just follow their leaders. And um, then what I found also really interesting is how quickly the Edor seem to adapt to the Letheri way of living in, um, in Reaper's scale, and you kind of get to see them become corrupted a little bit. And um, then you have, uh, in Reaper's scale, you have characters who are kind of standing on the border between these two peoples. Um, they're kind of struggling um, when dealing with the Letheri. They kind of still have their, I don't know, can you call it Edor? honor maybe (laughs) and so i think that makes it so hard to really judge them 
And um, what you also need to consider is that uh, they can be uh, pretty cruel or have always been cruel to others. If you look at the slaves, for example, um, yeah. and you can see that through uh, the perspective of Udinas. So, um, but then on the other hand, you have people like Charles Zenger, then you have in Reaper's Gale, Bruce and Trana. And what was the other guy? Uh, Brul Handar, I think. Um, who again have uh, some sympathetic aspects about them. So you can't really say that they're all bad or all good. They're just such a morally gray people. I mean, yeah, gray, you nice. are gray, so it kind of fits, I guess. So yeah, that's kind you know, of... I, I really agree. I remember reading some salty commenter once calling them like drow, like the D&D race, and I found it very unfair. I just think they're much more morally complicated, yeah. and I agree. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, criticisms of their society, it does remind me, it, it, there is this weird element where, you know, clearly they're like somewhat patrilineal. I don't really know, and it's like, obviously it's somewhat different, I think, the Narek patriarchy is talked about, but it's not really explored, you know? I don't know, it, it's... Something I don't understand, but, you know, I don't know. I agree. There are more complicated people than that. And I definitely agree with what you're saying about the leaders thing. I think it's and sometimes I just wonder if it's like a storytelling thing. I feel like definitely the Tists like have like a dude and it's like this is, you know, their dude and this is the Andy's dude. And, you know, I don't know. There's like larger than life heroes for yeah, each of them. Yeah, you know? right. The dragons. They tend yeah. to be dragons, right? Their leaders. Ever, with the exception dragon, of Rulad. <laughs> Uh, so Ruthana, how do you how do you feel about the eater, and how do you feel about this book as a I don't know. Would you call this book a prequel? You know, I, I, some pe some insane people in my mind, truly insane people, say you should start with this book. Well, I would say uh, all of us who finish the uh, the ten books uh, have pretty much a little bit of insanity in us. Agreed. <laughs> In, in terms of where you start, of course, this cannot be the starting point. But that that being said, I've never really tried it. I can't see how it would work. The only reason, the only possible reason that you might ask someone to start the series is because you think that simply because it's a clean slate, it can substitute as a first book. That's simply because it's a new location and a new storyline that it would substitute, but uh, that can't happen. And the reason is because, uh, Peter, I'm not too sure if you've seen the first collaboration that AP Canavan and Philip Chase made about uh, Gardens of the Moon. Watched a bit, didn't finish it. Right, so uh, AP made an excellent point there about the reason for Ericsson having to ship locations for different books, because he said, look, if you were doing a 10-book series on the Second World War, what would you have to do? You couldn't set them all in one place. You would need one book that focused on the sort of the Middle East campaign. You would need one book that focuses on the anti-colonial movements uh, that were fueling the Second World War. You would need one that talks about the European political dynamic with the rise, uh, rise of the Nazis and the fascists. You would need one book on how uh, uh, sort of uh, the United States under Roosevelt uh, entered the Second World War, you would have to talk about the uh, the competition between all the empires in Africa, which fueled both the First and the Second World War. So when you talk, when you have a story that spans the entire world, you will need different books that cover different locations. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a new start can be your actual start. 
Gardens of the Moon had to be the first one because even though we criticize Gardens of the Moon for not having enough exposition, when you reread it, you will find that there is a lot of exposition They're in like, Gardens of the is. Moon. Yeah. There is, and at, at least sort of in terms of us having getting the basics of the magic system, of the political system, Lassine's betrayal of, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a scene where uh, Shadow Throne and Cotillion talk about uh, uh, Lassine's betrayal and how much they sort of uh, hate Lassine, right? Uh, that's just, that's exposition. We, the two of them already know that they hate Lassine. Cotillion doesn't have to tell Shadow Throne in front of us as the reader, oh, you're too obsessed with revenge or whatever. That in the beginning of Gardens of the Moon was just to sort of establish for us some of the underlying storylines that would go on and on. But in terms of your question on what I think of Reaper's Gale as a, as a sequel to Midnight Tides, a do you feel up, that... A follow-up, so, 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 so do you feel that the Edur became a little one-dimensional in the book? Was that your problem? No, I don't think it's that. I think I was just like, this book is so defined. I don't know. I felt so invested in the Edur story that I like the whole seventh book could have just been about them. I didn't need any of the other stuff, you know? So then, you know, because the seventh book's not just about the Edur, right? So many other, you know, so many plot lines are coming into the continent. So I feel like I just, I kind of wished I spent more time with the characters that I had grown to love so much. And I think just that book's about something different, you know, kind of mismatched expectations in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I get what you mean. And I, I suppose the reason for that is because Reaper's Gale is all about an inversion of power. So throughout Reaper's Gale, you have a number of different dynamics where one side thinks they have power over another, but in reality, it's the other way around. So Kasa and the Cripple God, where the Cripple God thinks he's manipulating Kasa, but Kasa just tells the Cripple God to go fuck himself in the end. Uh, Icarium and Taralak Veed, where Taralak Veed thinks he's the one manipulating Icarium as his friend, but Icarium just abandons everything and walks away in the end. Uh, uh, the video that I made on Tanal Yatvana and Janath, where he thinks he has power over her, but she's the one who starts playing mind games with him. You can draw that same pattern with the T-Steedur and the Kingdom of Leather. Reaper's Gale was all about how even though the Edur have now conquered the kingdom of Lether, it's Lethary politics and the Lethary way of life that still has power over the Edur. The, the Edur might think that militarily they have conquered the kingdom of Lether, but they are the ones who have been swallowed by this giant kingdom. I definitely agree, and I think that's that, you know great analysis you presented there, kind of echoing um, that video you made. And... Um, I think it's because what you're kind of touching on, which is such a central pillar to this book, is that like kind of the Lethary way of life is defined by an economic use of power from one over the other. Right. It's about ex exercising economic control over others, be it through colonialism, imperialism or just through a hyperized form of capitalism. And I'm really curious about why you think this book is somewhat so dedicated to this exploration of power. What do you think, Counselor? Why is this the volume to tackle economic expression of power? Ooh, hmm. The simple answer, I guess, is just because of the uh, Lether Empire or the Letheri Empire, because they are uh, this society that is ruled by money. And um, we get to follow several uh, individual Letheri um who seem to be only interested in their personal gain and are willing to do morally despicable things just to uh, yeah get more money and um 
I think it's also um, kind of a deconstruction of that empire um, that we get on the one hand with uh, Tehol, um, who is Tehol seems to be the only Lethari who is not interested in money at all, even though he could be the richest person uh, in the whole empire. And yeah, I mean, he is in the end, but he doesn't use that money for himself. He actually wants to um, change the way things go and um, yeah, uh, kind of get rid of that rule of money and um, enable a better living for um, the poorer people. And in the end, he also succeeds with that. And um, I think um, the Edor, they are kind of um, swallowed by um, this Letheri way of living. But then you have people like uh, Karsa Orlong coming in, who is also... I mean, maybe the parallel you could draw between Karsa and the Idor is that they both seem to be kind of savages, but Karsa is like on a even more primal level of being like Karsa Orlong, the barbarian. And he does not, he is not overwhelmed by the Letheri. He finds them despicable. He is totally not okay with what they're doing. And he also... Um, it's not okay with what the Idor are doing. So there's this scene where the um, those Tist Idor um, that have been imprisoned in the ships and then later in Letharas are released. And then Karsa, he swears vengeance for those people because he says, um, okay, you're doing that to your kin and you call me the barbarian. So, um, and then Karsa in the end is the one who brings down the emperor. So... Yeah, I don't know if that was answering your question, but that was kind of what um, came to my mind here. I think it's kind of interesting we're talking about Reaper's Gale so much, but not too surprising since obviously these two books are integrated in major ways, right? And it brings me to this question. You know, my friend uh, Johan, good guy, I like him, but he just is getting to Reaper's Gale and he's talking to me, he's reading the series for the first time and he's like, I'm enjoying Reaper's Gale, but part of me really feels like I don't know why I we had to do Midnight Tides, you know? Couldn't we have just skipped this book and showed up to Letharis and just, like, you know, we didn't need the backstory? Do you know what I mean? And I think this, you know, I understand his point, you know, and it's going to be a matter of, you know, your 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 point of view, whatever. Um, but I think it's getting to what you're getting at. I'd like to hear your thoughts on his, his, his thought. But I think it's kind of what you mentioned about this AP Canavan thing about, you know, what is it? What is the story here? Do you know what I mean? Because if the story is about getting to the crippled God and we're going to the glass desert and we're all, you know, we're all Tavor and Puppa, you know, then sure. Yeah, maybe I don't know if we needed this. You know, I, I get this argument. Do you mean if it's about the destination, you know? But is it really about that? Because if that's what it's about, I don't know if Gardens of the Moon is the place to start. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, I think it gets into this question about what do you do when you spend three million words, ten huge novels? You know, is this really about getting to the single point at the end of the story? You know, I don't know. I think it's going to be a matter of how you think about it. And I wonder what you think about it, Counselor. Um. So I don't think it's about the destination. Um, I think the journey is such a big part of the series. And if you're just here for the destination and just want to find out uh, what the ending is about, then I don't think um, 
you're gonna love the series because you need to care, uh, care about the the way to the destination and i think that midnight heights is totally necessary because um I think if you would have just jumped in um, into that storyline with a Reaper scale, we wouldn't have gotten all that set up. And then uh, this uh, clash and the intertwining of the Letheri and the Edur um, would be way less, it would have way less weight to it, I guess. And then also Midnight Tides uh, presents us with that backstory of the crippled god and the sword and how Rulat got it, which I think is also really important. And it presents us with the um, backstory of Trull and what happened here, how he got, you know, outlawed by his people. So I think um, if Midnight Tides would not have been there, then um, Reaper's Gale just, it just wouldn't be the same. Um, so yeah, and I personally on my first read through, I enjoyed um, Midnight Heights more than Reaper's Gale um, because it just, has a better flow, I guess. I think Erickson once said himself that Midnight Heights is the book that basically wrote itself. And I think you can feel that. Um, and yeah. Reaper's Gale is a book that is a lot more work to get through. But I think in order to appreciate that work, you need that foundation that Midnight Heights uh, sets. I really agree. And I I'm, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I understand his opinion. Obviously, I don't agree with my friend's thought, but I think it's because if you think about the stories about Tavor getting to the glass desert and defending the, you know, if like that's what the story's about, then sure, you know, why don't we just start with, you know, why don't we start with the army when they're there? I mean, but like. It's um, quite a slippery slope as well, because once we start doing that, uh, you could argue, you could, you could use that same logic to argue that the Shaikh rebellion was pointless. We could argue that exactly. the Panian Domin uh, revolt was pointless. Uh, once we start looking at whether these major set pieces were important for the final objective in the Colans Desert, then every major plot line collapses. If we were to start using, it's a very slippery slope, if you ask me. No, I, I really agree. And I think it's just because, and, and it, but the thing is, I, you know, I do get it somewhat, you know, but like, it's because ultimately it's coming down to like it what is the story about? It's an anthology. You know? And exactly. It in some way is it really I wouldn't go as far as to say it's an anthology, but it's really channeling a lot of that same energy. I mean, what's what Garden of the Moon is about is only related to what Book Ten's about in like thematic and, you know, some structural ways. I mean, I guess they mention some of the stuff, but I don't know. It's not, I guess a crossover you know. would be a better uh, word for it. That's what I like using. It's kind of like the Marvel crossover where you might have individual Iron Man and Captain America stories, and there might be weekly issues that they print out where there are larger plot lines with many different characters from the Marvel verse uh, participating. So that's always the way that I approach the series. No, definitely. And it just gets into this fundamental question and we should move on then. It's just like, what do you do when you spend three million? Like, what are 10 huge books? Do you mean, are they really related? You know, how are they related? What's the relationship to one another? You know, but now, Counselor, I really agree with what you said in some ways. I don't know about you guys. When my first way through the series, I think this was my favorite book. I think I was head over the heels with it. And I think it's because, as I said, I just really connected with it. And I was able to like, I don't know, I was just able to fully grasp it. The, I don't know. I was able to grasp it so well the first time through. And Ruth, before you got on the call, me and Counselor were talking about uh, how how much 
told the hounds kind of shines on a second read through because she was talking about her read through on her channel. And yeah, I wonder for me revisiting Midnight Tides, I think in some ways I some of the shine came off it in a way, you know, um, and I wonder, you know, Ruthon, you said you revisited a little. Counselor, I, I know you've reread it. And I wonder how you guys feel like rereading the books kind of changes your perspective from your first experience. Because I feel like often they're pretty different experiences rereading them. Um, because we've just been talking about the journey and the destination. I think what has changed for me a little is that it's more about the journey on reread. And I feel like when I was um, reading it for the first time, I was sometimes rushing through a little bit too much. And I feel like I was reading those books really quickly. I think Iskar has also um, said that he had that issue when, it, when he read it for the first time, that he just read them so quickly. And then in the end, like, what was that? I need to reread that. And I think I was having that same issue and a lot of things I just overlooked and didn't appreciate. And also I wasn't that well read in fantasy back then. And I think um, now on reread, I'm reading the books a lot slower and I'm picking up a lot more. And um, so that's on the one hand, a positive thing, but um then on the other hand, I feel like this crazy enthusiasm of, I have to get to the end now. I need to know what's going to happen. What's going to happen to my favorite characters? It's not really there quite as much anymore. So on the one hand, it's uh, a lot more deep and worthwhile, I guess. But then on the other hand, it's sometimes a little bit more, well, no, not dull, but um, I don't know, the the, the craziness, the initial craziness about the series has worn off a little if that makes sense no i i get you i feel you i was going to say i i sort of when you guys were talking about how you like midnight tides more than reaper's gale i was on board with with that during my first read through when i finished the 10 big books i did place midnight tides higher than reaper's gale but as a rereader i would have to put reaper's gale on a uh, on a higher uh uh, pedestal than Midnight Tides because I just feel that Reaper's Gale has a lot more in terms of stuff to dissect and analyze and sort of jump into over and over again, think about it from different angles. Uh, for, the, for the type of stuff that I like in my fiction, I would say Reaper's Gale has rewarded me a lot. The reason I don't read Midnight Tides or reread Midnight Tides that often is because while there are things there that I find enjoyable to revisit over and over again, it's certainly not on the same uh, level as Reaper's Gale for me. I've read, uh, I, I did not like Reaper's Gale that much the first time. I've got to be honest. Reaper's Gale was probably in my... Me too. I It's one of my least favorite my first time through. I'm really excited to revisit it for that reason, because as I mentioned to you, I think I kind of had mismatched expectations. I don't really thought like time to follow the eater up and it's just not that So book. I was just going to say, perhaps looking at Reaper's Gale as a sequel to Midnight Tides is perhaps wrong because while it might be set in the sort of same continent or whatever, I think a lot of people who are disappointed in the follow-up probably expected Reaper's Gale to be a sequel for Midnight Tides rather than Reaper's Gale being part seven in six books and multiple different plot lines and storylines that are now converging. Because if you think about it, uh, Kasa arriving, 
uh, in the Kingdom of Letter, the bridge burners arriving, uh, many different things that have been built up in previous books converge in books six and seven. No, dead, dead, dead on. And I think, uh, I think if in some ways that you know, I don't know. I think at the end of Bone Hunters, it's kind of silly to say was like the first time and i feel like a lot of people feel this way you're like i kind of get it i get what we're doing and i get where we're all going you know we're all going to letharis this we're doing it do you know what i mean maybe all of the characters will be in one book at the same time you know um but this 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 does i i jive with that what you said there ruthan and that like I feel like some of the shine came off the apple, too, when I reread Memories of Ice. You know, a book I think is a good, good book. You know, I'm not trying to smirch it or anything. But I think about a book like Gardens of the Moon or House of Chains, both books that I don't particularly like. And in fact, I was pretty critical of on the show in some ways. However, I think I would almost rather reread those books than reread the, this book because I feel like I'm just like still chewing on it or i'm just like i'm trying to get my head around it or i'm trying to look at it like at a different angle and and kind of just think about it in a different way where part of me feels like you know i kind of jived with it i I don't know how like if i reread this a third time i think i'd get a little more but i don't know how much more i can wring out of this towel i don't know if you feel that way at all counselor Mm, yeah kind of so first of all i uh, also wanted to say um uh, what Ruthan has been saying about Midnight Tides and Reaper Scale, I uh, do agree with that. And um, now on reread, I wouldn't really say that I enjoyed um, Midnight Tides more. Um, as I said, it's an easier read and Reaper Scale was more work. But I think on reread, Reaper Scale was a lot more rewarding and it had so much more to unpack about it with those storylines like. Um, Karus Invictat, for example, all that stuff that is so brilliant and everything going on in the Leather Empire. And I really didn't appreciate that the first time. So um, I think Reaper Scale has really uh, risen in my um, estimation of how good it is. So yeah, um, hmm, as to the, the shine coming off, yeah, I I get what you mean. I kind of actually um before i was rereading memories of ice i was actually a little scared um to get into it because i was afraid that it wouldn't have that effect on me anymore that overwhelming emotional effect that it really crushes you and it still hit me emotionally but i just probably it's what i said before that intense enthusiasm it's not really there anymore and it's kind of replaced by me uh, craving those um deeper um you know elements and storylines that you can really unpack that i didn't really um see the first time because i was reading it on a more superficial level so does that make sense no i definitely I'm grokking with what you're saying, yeah. Uh, it made sense to me. Okay. <laughs> Great. You know, in some ways, we're kind of doing a little companion thing, talking about, you know, Reaper Scale and Midnight Tides, you know, because they, they are pretty interrelated in some ways. But something I do think that is great, and then I want to broaden the conversation away, is that I do think this book is one of Erickson's most self-contained. Do you know what I mean? Like, pretty much by the end of the book, you know, I know it's technically, I don't know, but like... 
I think all of the books are self-contained in some ways, but I feel like especially at this one, you know, it's a complete thought. It's an end of a sentence. We get to a period. And although, you know, you know, fear and, you know, that whole crew was going off and, you know, trolls, but I don't know. Don't you agree? Isn't it kind of like a, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, like Erickson does try to sort of insist often that all the books are self-contained in a way, except books nine and ten. But I don't see how someone could just read The Bone Hunters, for instance, and say, oh, yeah, that was a standalone book, even though there is a typical uh, start, middle and end. But yes, this is probably the closest that any of the maybe Gardens of the Moon. Right. But other than Gardens of the Moon, this is the closest that anything gets to a self-contained story, because as you said, we see we, we enter the story when things are calm. We are there along with the with the journeys, uh, uh, with the uh, the characters' journeys as things go haywire. We watch the war, and then we see the resolution of the war as well. So, and even though we don't really see the future with Rulard now being the king, uh, other than perhaps some of the earlier books like Memories of Ice, where we get a clear resolution to the uh, the Panion Domin uh, threat as well, there are only a couple of books that give us that resolution. And Midnight Tides is certainly one of them. Yeah, uh, and I always think that comment, I always think about it in a, almost a television sense. You know, like you were going to end the episode of television and we feel like we did it. I watched a full story, you know, and I feel like in most of the books you put them down and you're like, you know, that was it. We did it, you know. Um, But, you know, we're uh, I, I do, you know, we're talking about relationship a lot with Reaper's Gale. But, you know, in a big picture thing, you know, I wonder what you guys think about it falling into the scope of the whole series, you know? And I know we talked about it, and I think we're all in agreement it's essential, and this idea you could cut it is, I don't know, Johan's welcome to his opinions, but... Um, He's right. He, he, he has a where, point, where you... He does have a point when he says that that uh, sort of uh, uh, Reaper's Gale, right, does not really function as in that, that, that Midnight Tides as a book when we look at it, once you finish the, I wonder what your friend's going to say once he's done with the series, because once he's done with the series, that feeling will probably grow. This feeling of why did we have Midnight Tides will probably grow because uh, we don't really see them doing much beyond Reaper's Gale either. In fact, uh, Bryce is there almost as a tokenistic character in the final battle. In in my opinion, I would have rather Bryce just you know I don't know we, I didn't need him in the uh, the the finale. But anyway, yeah. Continue. So so that that entire plot goes nowhere with the final Colans battle. Whereas with the other forces, we kind of we see the Jagood there, we see the Aimas there, we see the Kachin Chamal there. There are many plot points that converge, and we see Bryce there as well, representing the sort of uh, lethary storyline or whatever. And there's a small cameo. Uh, from Tehol, I think right at the beginning of Dust of Dreams. But once your friend is done mm. yeah, yeah. with all 10 books, uh, his sort of, uh, his point is only going to be stronger in his mind. Uh, no, I I agree. Like, he's not wrong. I understand his point. I just, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I just like the book too much, you know, I don't know. But, but I, so what I was getting at is I do wonder where you, what you think about where it falls in the series as a whole in terms of pacing and in terms of themes. I don't know. Like when you think about this book, what do you think about in, in, in terms of the big scope, Counselor? Ooh, that's actually not that easy of a question. No, so, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, so my spontaneous thought here is that what is kind of a parallel 
to other books is that of convergence kind of that you have two different sides whose storylines kind of get intertwined i mean you have that element in several of the other books as well so um you have uh, in gardens of the moon you have uh darutistan versus the malasans then you have the whole um apocalypse thing on seven cities then you have the alliance versus the panion domen and then in um, Midnight Tides, you have the Leferi versus the um, Testidor. And I think that Midnight Tides is the last book that kind of has that clear this group versus that group um, story going on. And then afterwards, uh, with Bone Hunters and then Reaper Scale and onwards, it, it's kind of where um, several storylines start to converge and it's getting harder and harder to kind of say, yeah, this is what it's about. We have this group and then that group and they're fighting. So um, I think what Midnight Tides is doing, it's uh, presenting us with that last piece of setup with uh, that kind of structure. And um, all of that structure is kind of a foundation um, that's important to understand the overall evolution that is going on um, in the series because I personally always felt like the series portrays a world that is going through a transformation and kind of a, an age is done, the book must close in the end. So, um, and in order to really understand that transformation, you need that foundation that is presented um, to us through the first five books. So, yeah. I guess that's kind of my answer. So it kind of presents us with that setup that we got in um, Chenabakis and Seven Cities uh, through the first four books with this um, two group. Yeah, I don't know. This one group versus the other. I don't know. No, I think that's a great point. And I've never really thought about it that way that I, you know, this is definitely, I don't know, I guess towards the end end maybe there is a bit of a this team versus that team type of thing but i don't know it's definitely different especially in a book like this where it's so delineated between the two major plot lines and even in a book like told the hounds where there is a major delineation it's not really about you know it's just kind of two different settings the fact that you know they're not against each other or anything Ruthan, what do you think of the question? Big scope, big picture. Yeah, so as far as Midnight Tides goes, uh, if I was to just give it a regular rating like I would with any other book, I would say it's an excellent book. As in if I was to go on a sort of Goodreads or Amazon type page, I would still give it five stars or whatever the maximum rating sure. is because I think it's an excellent book. However, if, if the question is where does it stand in the sort of the pantheon of books, where does it stand in the context of the larger series, uh, I have to admit that it's not one of my favorites, right? Uh, because, uh, because since I've revisited most mm. of the other books many times, Midnight Tides has come down a lot. Uh, there are a couple of books uh, like House of Chains and Reaper's Gale and even Dust of Dreams that I would have put below Midnight Tides the first time I read the series, which I now put uh, ahead of Midnight Tides. Uh, that would be so because... 
other than tehol and maybe iron bars i can't think of uh, too many other characters and storylines that uh, i would look forward to actively going in and and reading again so when i think of midnight tides i think about the sort of all the economic stuff the empire stuff uh, the tehol stuff the edur uh, sort of power struggle and all that but ultimately i think eh you know it's okay in in the context of the larger 10 books i would say it's it's not one of my personal favorites interesting yeah i i'm i'm really interested to see and you know i'm obviously my first reread is like on the show and everything so it's kind of interesting to revisit some of these books and as i'm saying and i feel like at, by the end you know i feel like i'm going to end up putting i know i already think told the hounds is now my favorite but i just feel like as you're saying just some of those other books are gonna squeak out ahead of a book like midnight tides which as you're saying i like this book a lot you know i t- i'm extol its virtues all day um but you know he i think an important element of this book when i think about it in the grand scope of the series is that i do think in some ways you know i know we have the penny and Domin, and you know we have the the apocalypse and all this but I think this is a much more meaningful representation of the crippled god at like, I don't I was going to say the height of his power, but that's not really the phrase I would use. But, you know, having a very meaningful influence, you know, and, and what does it mean to like, what does this power mean and how is his power being used? And and like, what is your relationship to being kind of being seduced or corrupted or trying to use this power for your own will? You know, I don't know. I, th- I think about it as being kind of the most meaningful exploration exploration of a relationship between the crippled god and one of his followers, you know? Because the other ones that we get, you know, I don't know, they they don't do much for me compared to some of those scenes between Rulad and the Crippled God and the relationship between the Crippled God as a whole and the Eder people. It's interesting that you say that because to me, uh, I always thought that the, that the Crippled God became interesting only at the end of Reaper's Gale when he begs Kasa to really? take the sword and Kasa just tells him to get lost. And by the time we get to Toll the Hounds, we do see that his personality is a lot softer and a lot more sympathetic now for whatever reason and by the time we get to dust of dreams and the cripple god uh, as i said in one of my videos before we find out that he is the damsel in distress that we are here to save so to me uh, the cripple god because if you look at his relationship with the sword maker in midnight tides i'm i'm actually quite fascinated that you would say that that it was a meaningful exploration of his uh, of his personality because to me uh, I didn't really see much there other than what Erickson had already led me to believe because Erickson had already fooled me into believing that this guy was going to be the big antagonist of the series because of the Cripple God and House of Chains and I was just completely uh, reeled in I had swallowed the bait uh, hook line and sinker and, and when I was reading Definitely this too. book I just saw the Cripple God as this big evil force that had to be defeated you know, interesting to say that. I mean, um, how, how do you how do you feel, counselor? Mm, so, um, what I like about um, the Cripple God in Midnight Tides is that we get to see the his involvement a lot more uh, with Rulat, and um, also Rulat. I guess he's also kind of reflecting the crippled god maybe a little bit when you see um how tormented he really is and he's in a situation which he cannot escape which is also true for the crippled god and um when i was reading 
um, the series for the first time, I I thought that the crippled god is the antagonist as well, um, but I did feel some uh, sympathy for him um, because I don't know, there was just something about this guy sitting in his tent and he's uh, pretty sick all the time and I kind of felt sorry for him and I had been wondering, has anybody ever tried to extend a friendly hand to him and just be nice to him? What would happen then? And nobody ever does that. And um, then in the end, when we find out that it's actually about um, saving the crippled god, that was a little bit of a confirmation to me because I thought, ah, yeah, see, they should have just been nice to him. And um, I... Yeah, I um, really enjoyed that whole uh, story element of um, the crippled god and the sword and Rulat and everything. And also to see um, Rulat's yeah, descent into madness, I think. That's, oh. um, it's so heart-wrenching, honestly, because he was a little bit of a bratty teenager. He was not a, a likable character in the beginning, but he did not deserve what was happening to him. And I felt incredibly sorry for him. So, and um, then by the end of, of Reaper Scale, you have realized that Rulat is just, yeah, a poor guy in a horrible situation. And the same is true for the uh, Crippled God as well. So, yeah, did, agreed about Rulat. I mean, it, uh, fascinating character in some ways, but, uh, you know, in some ways, isn't he just like a boy, you know? Um, uh, but, uh, but, as you're, uh, you know, I think maybe we will disagree on that, on Ruthon. I, you know, I will agree in some ways. I don't think like the books about the crippled god in Midnight Tides is, or it's like that complicated of a portrayal or anything. But I think this is the start of understanding him more, of him being a little more sympathetic. And I definitely think his relationship with Rulad is much more fleshed out than his relationship with to the Apocalypse or the Pananian Domain, where I feel like in those two, he's definitely like, Oh no, there's the big bad god and he's really bad and ooh, you know, it feels like that's really where those feelings that we're talking about on your first read where you're like this guy sucks like originates from kind of those images of the god. Yeah, absolutely. And this is also perhaps because Rulard is the first tool that he uses where the entire power base is his. So when he uses the Panion Domin in Memories of Ice, that guy's a Jagut already. Those guys are sort of strong enough to beat the shit out of anybody they see, essentially. And with the with House of Chains, uh, he uses Shaikh. The Whirlwind is a Tulan Aimas, Onrak's wife. Onrak's wife, who has been jilted, that Onrak picked Kilava over him, and she's just turned into this sort of uh, specter of revenge or whatever. That's what the whirlwind in Raraku is. So with the previous quote-unquote antagonists that we see, while they do draw, while the cripple god does use them as tools, their power base is not completely his. Rulard is the first real, once again, quote-unquote antagonist that we see who was, in, who was breeded entirely by the cripple god. The, 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 the emperor that the emperor on the throne, the unkillable emperor with the sword that we see is entirely the cripple god's creation, which is not something that we can say with all the other major threats that that we faced in in sort of in previous books. But I mean, come on, is, is he really the most sympathetic character, the ruler? Is he really? Oh! 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's the most sympathetic, but I agree in that I think, I don't know, he's definitely a bad dude, you know? Like, obviously, him being in a bad situation doesn't make him not responsible as in, as in, for all If we look stuff. at the horrible things that happen to talk, if we look at the horrible things that happen to sort of Beak, if we look at... There, there are so many characters in the series uh, whose, whose lives are just... Uh, a tragic series of just one miserable thing after another. Does Roulard really belong in that top sympathetic sort of group? I don't know. What do you think, Counselor? I know how I feel. Mm, so I think that <clears throat> Roulard appears a little bit more gray than um, Talk, for example. Um, as to what they went through, that's debatable whose uh, fate was um, more horrible. They both had to suffer a lot, I guess. I mean, talk, my poor boy. <laughs> and um, I think uh, with Rulat, it's easy to see him as pathetic because he, uh, when you have that imagery of him uh, like crying and just being in complete despair um, and then, yeah, just when he um, is reborn and he just lies there um, screaming and everything, you just think, it's easy to think, yeah, he's just such a pathetic guy. Um, just can he not be better, stand up, do something? And especially when uh, you, the way you've gotten to know him in Midnight Heights, where he's this bratty teenager who is like um, making eyes at his brother's um, future wife and everything. Um, that doesn't really make him sympathetic. So, um, but I think what we need to consider here is that in order to feel compassion, yes, I've mentioned the word compassion. Um, <laughs> a character doesn't need to be sympathetic, I guess. Um, in Reaper's Gate, for example, I even felt compassion for Kairos Invictad, who is not a great guy, like really not at all. So, um, because you have been saying that, is Ruthan really the most sympathetic guy? No, absolutely not. But um, that doesn't mean that I can't feel for him. Yeah, I agree. And I, I especially agree with your point about talk. Okay, so why don't we, let's put this to test then, this whole idea of what a sympathetic character uh, Rulard is. Let's just put it to test, right? Look, look at, compare that with uh, the person, the cripple god used before Rulard, the Panian seer, the Panian domain. That is a sympathetic character. A kid who was caught in the middle of a genocide. The mass murderers were coming after his mother. They killed his mother in front of him. He escaped with his sister. And the two of them were caught for thousands of years in this, uh, this warren of chaos or whatever. He comes back under the control of the crippled god and he does all this. And then we find out that he's just the guy who wants to take care of his sister. That, to me, is a much more sympathetic character than, a, as, uh, as Counselor was saying, a bratty teenager who, who, who makes eyes at his brother's uh, wife or whatever. Yeah, and I listen, you know, I, I, maybe wires getting crossed in some ways. I don't know. I mean, like, obviously, I have tremendous sympathy for talk. Do you know what I mean? Let's, like, take him as you used. Like, you know, and same thing with Ditto with Opinion. And, like, you know, but my, my sympathy for talk and everything... Is is uncomplicated. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, that must have been really bad. Feels bad for talk. Feels bad to read about it. He goes through so much, and every time you're like, man, again, it's fucking Job over here, you know. And like, 
you know, I don't know. So, yeah, you know, but it, but when we get to the Rulad thing, this is what I think is more compelling, right? Because it's for me, it's it's much more compelling to read about than the talk stuff because it's really pressing me. And I know and listen, maybe some people have less, you know, for the him being a bit of a brat. Right. But like, you know, because obviously he's a bad dude in a lot of ways. Right. And just like straight up bad. A lot of ways does a lot of bad stuff. You know, but it's like pressing me, I think, more on like, how far does this go? And like, how are you actually willing to feel about him while he's, you know, there is these sympathetic elements to him, but he's a much worse dude. And, you know, where, you know, I don't know. Of course, I feel bad for you. I mean, I think I'm more drawn to this trying to process how I actually feel, even if it results in me ranting for 30 minutes and not getting anywhere. But I feel like I'd rather chew on that than just be like, man. Tox having a bad time. Yeah, isn't that, that's he? a valid you know? point. Yeah. Not that, you know, it always gets weird when you're comparing who's having a worse time. Not that you, that's a thing we can really do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what has been uh, making me really sad when rereading Reaper Scale is that um, Rula doesn't really get a chance to change again. Because, I mean, he was a teenager. So technically, he's still almost a kid when all of that happens to him and he would have had a lot of time in front of him or or before him um to just change and become a better person and but that doesn't happen because then the whole crippled god and sword and a thousand deaths uh stuff happens to him and then the, in the end he just dies and i think that is really sad because he could have behaved differently in the beginning but then he didn't get a chance to undo what he was doing wrong no i agree and i we gotta wrap up soon but i don't know about you guys i think that's part of the reason we keep talking about reaper's gale where i think i was kind of disappointed in reaper's gale because i found his death to be a bit of a letdown especially with how invested i was in in that character so i don't know i don't know how else i wanted it to end of course maybe he had to die in some ways but yeah you're right in that he is, you know, I don't know. In some ways, he is defined by his adolescence. We even talk about the late adolescence of Eater early on in Midnight Tides. Yeah, that troll's a virgin. Yeah, troll is a virgin. He talks about it next to the turtle. What a legendary scene. <laughs> anyway, um, listen, everybody, that's going to do it for us today on the show. Um, you should check out uh, both Ruth Ann and Counselor's uh, YouTube channels. There'll be a link in our description, and you can find them on the YouTube.com, as the kids say. And uh, you, you should check out their videos. They've been putting them up pretty recently. And, uh, you know, good stuff, good stuff. And as I said, I just love having more voices in the community. And, you know, more the merrier is my two cents. And uh, listen, we got five more books, so hopefully they'll be, uh, you know, back soon enough. You know, I mean, in a few months, we'll be doing Bone Hunters. Let us know what you think of the show at we're 10 Very Big Books and Gmail and Twitter. And uh, any closing thoughts from you two? No, it was a pleasure. Yeah. It's been really nice chatting with you guys, and yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And and you can you you can cut this out if you want to, but uh, I like how Erickson's probably going to be sitting through over an hour of this discussion, hoping for us to start talking about the things that he tried to kind of make us uh, sort of uh, to, to pit us against each other about and let him just sit through a 70 minute discussion and there's nothing nothing uh. about what he wants us to <laughs> not a single thing you can't provoke us steve nice try not biting steve sorry <laughs> <laughs> all right all right everybody let's uh well let's do it again sometimes a great talk and goodbye everybody goodbye.